December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. It's hardcore history. The Blitz Edition. Welcome to the debut episode of what we're calling the Blitz Edition to the Hardcore History Podcast. And I was trying to think about what we could compare this to, and I think the best comparison, especially given the episode subject that I could come up with, was that this is like a light beer version of our normal show. It's an attempt to rectify several of the problems that have been bedeviling us that have cropped up since show number one. You see, I had a lot of fancy ideas for the design of this podcast that turned out to be good on the listener end, but really tough on the producer end. In addition, these shows, if you've been with us for a while, you'll notice, have grown in you know length and scope and breadth from what we initially designed. Show number one was 15 minutes long. Show number 19 was an unforgivable hour and 18 minutes. So you can see how the workload has grown exponentially around here which has led to the number one problem that you listeners have with the program. It's also the number one problem we have with the program around here, and that's that it's taking too darn long to get the program out. They've been running it more than two months lately, and that's just too long between shows. In addition to that, I built no place into the original program where I could talk to you directly. I had a theater of the mind concept um, in mind, and that doesn't allow me to break the mood by talking to you directly like I am now. I wanted to rectify that. In addition, there was no place for us to put advertising in the middle of the show, which is what a lot of advertisers want. Now, we're here because of your donations. You keep us going. But if we're going to do this forever, which is our goal, sustainability is our goal, we're going to need to have several different ways we can pull in some dollars. And advertising is a must as well. But you see, in the same way that I didn't want to break up your hardcore history theater of the mind with my voice, I didn't want to break it up with advertising either. So we won't be doing any advertising in the middle of the hardcore history shows. Well, not the big regular ones. That's one of the things we hope to solve with this program today. These Blitz editions, and by the way, if this is the first hardcore history episode you've ever heard, please stop listening. Go download one of our earlier shows and get a better idea of what we do normally. I want to emphasize that these Blitz editions are not instead of the longer programs you already enjoy. These are in addition to them. We're already in production and working on the next longer Hardcore History program, but it's still going to take a while. So this is your appetizer to keep you from starving while you're waiting for dinner. This is something I promised a couple shows back, our attempt to get you more content more often. I can talk to you directly here. We can run ads, and hopefully, even if this ends up being a light beer version of our regular show, hopefully you'll still enjoy it in the end. And hopefully it's still strong enough to give your brain a little buzz somehow. So, without further ado, let's kick off the first edition of uh, the Blitz edition of Hardcore History. December 7th. 1941, a date which will live in infamy. It's hardcore history. The Blitz edition. I remember a conversation that I had once with a police officer. 
when I was a member of the media, I did something called a ride-along, which is where a member of the press gets to sit in a car with a couple of police officers and experience one of their days with them. And uh, this happened to be a night, not a day. And I remember cruising down some of these streets that looked a little scary. And I remember the police officer giving me a lecture on their standard operating procedures in this kind of a situation. And I remember he said at one point, whenever you encounter someone in the dark of night on a street like this, be careful when you approach them. He said, you never know what they might be on. And of course he was referring to alcohol or drugs or something that might make them unpredictable and might make them behave in ways that don't make sense, that are inappropriate to the situation. They might be out of control. And when thinking about the subject I wanted to discuss today, I thought, you know, that's a wonderful line to take from that police officer and just adapt it a little bit and say, when encountering figures from history, it is wise to treat them the way a police officer treats a suspect on that dark street. Be careful. You never know what that historical figure might be on. More on history under the influence when we come back. Are you one of those people that has been emailing me about the early Hardcore History episodes? I get a ton of emails saying, Dan, what do I need to do to get my hands on show number four or six or something like that? And up till now, I had no good answer for you. But finally, our first piece of Hardcore History merchandise is available, and it happens to be the classic Hardcore History episodes. As a matter of fact, it shows 1 through 17 sent to you, you know, to your mailbox on some sort of a shiny disc you can put in your computer and play. Could be CD, could be a DVD, Ben, I don't know what we're using. In any case, if this sounds good to you, some of these episodes have been unavailable for quite some time. If this sounds good to you, head over to the website at dancarlin.com, click on the merchandising link, and get yourself some classic hardcore history, and maybe keep checking back because we have other offerings, um, well, on the horizon. Let's just say that. I want to give Adolf Hitler a drug test. That's just one of the things on my to-do list as soon as I get that time machine I've been wanting. There's a bunch of other figures from history, too, that need breathalyzer tests or drug tests in my mind. We all know, don't we, how much of an impact intoxicants have on our modern society. There's a reason that there's so many legal sanctions and testing and regulations. I mean, heck, a lot of people are in jail today for doing things that historical leaders have done in history. The only difference is we don't have any proof or evidence that they did them. There's a whole hidden side to history that we all know was there. There's just precious little evidence about it. Certainly nothing that would stand up in a court of law today. If you're lucky... When you're studying figures from the past, you might have a little bit of antidotal evidence. Somebody might have said something once in history that a biographer found. Or circumstantial evidence, a little something that suggests that there might be some drinking or drug use, for example, going on in someone's private life. But nothing definitive. This lack of evidence, though, has allowed a whole piece of the historical puzzle to go missing. 
You know it's out there, but you can't prove it. And if you can't prove it, you start looking for other ways to explain behavior that are less logical than just asserting that, hey, somebody was under the influence when they did this. Let me give you an example of what I mean. You think of the recent history, the Princess Diana uh, fat fatal crash that happened in Paris. If you don't know that the driver of her car is under the influence, you're missing a huge piece of that puzzle, right? Imagine someone a hundred years from now trying to make sense of that accident when they're writing a history book on Princess Diana, and they not know that the driver of the car was drunk. You'll start looking for all sorts of fanciful reasons that things might have happened that are less logical than the drunken driver if you don't know that. Now, imagine that happening throughout history a lot. There is a whole bunch of people that you can look at that we have a teeny little bit of evidence for, and now you can start imagining how much of this stuff must be part of the hidden history. And it's not just intoxicants. We all know that there are all sorts of hidden sides to history. If someone today wanted to write a biography about you, how close would they be able to get to the truth? Well, it might depend on how much you shared with the biographer. I think there's a lot of people that would probably have a few things that they would not readily volunteer. That applies to everyone in history. But sometimes those things are really important. Like, if you couldn't pass a drug test. Let me give you an example to start with. Let's take one of the most popular presidents in American history, someone who is still widely viewed with, um, well, almost celebrity status, John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy, um, for those of you outside the United States, was a president that served from uh, 1961 to 1963, and of course he was assassinated. He's still a huge figure in the public mind because the assassination is one of those things that people have been able to write books about ever since and have all sorts of theories as to who really was behind his killing. JFK was also uh, young and handsome and vigorous, and there was a whole element to his presidency that people look back on fondly. But a lot of what they look back on fondly about was a myth. JFK was not vigorous. JFK was practically a cripple. Being vigorous was part of what he campaigned on. He was going up against an administration that was considered to be older. There was a whole bunch of young people just coming of age in the United States. They were ready for a message of passing the torch, as JFK said, to a new generation, his generation. And JFK would be seen playing touch football with his brothers, you know, um, seeming the picture of health, young, youth, vigor. Vigor was one of his favorite campaign words. But we know now that John F. Kennedy's body was falling apart. The biographies written about him in the last 10 years are the most revealing ever about how bad this president's physical condition really was. He couldn't put his socks on in the morning, some biographers have said. There were whole days during his presidency where he stayed in bed the whole day and just worked from there. Now, it's only in the past decade or so that JFK's medical records have been revealed to the public. And doctors who have looked at these medical records, modern doctors, are amazed at how much stuff JFK was putting into his body. He had so many terrible problems that needed to be treated with medication. And then this medication would often cause side effects that would be treated with further medication. That it's amazing that the guy was able to do his job at all. You read the list of the stuff he was taking. First of all, just the legal stuff. The painkillers, the opiate narcotic painkillers that he needed were of such strong dosages that you would wonder today if you found out your current president was under the influence of these drugs. 
JFK would not have passed a modern drug test. In addition, for a nice part of his presidency, JFK was receiving special shots from a guy named Dr. Max Jacobson. He's got another nickname, by the way. The um, music artists, the poets, and the writers who also visited Dr. Max Jacobson for the same shot JFK was getting coined a nickname, Dr. Feelgood. Jacobson, by the way, had his license revoked in 1972 for giving these shots, the kind he gave to JFK. He gave a lot of them to JFK, and the shots contained vitamins, steroids, which, by the way, JFK was taking a lot of steroids because he had a condition called Addison's disease, which uh, didn't produce adrenaline in his system, so he needed to supplement it. The steroids, by the way, are what puffed up his face. When you see classic photos of JFK with that signature-looking face, realize that he was upset with that face because it's all puffed up from the steroids he's taking. To him, he should have been much younger, looking more like his brother Robert. But that face is sort of a signature face now. You look at it and you think, that's what JFK looked like. No, that's what JFK looked like with steroids. Now, jo Dr. Jacobson's shot had the vitamins, the steroids, a whole bunch of other things, and a large amount of amphetamines. What kids on the street today would say meth for that. As a matter of fact, he was taking so much of this stuff, and he had several different doctors, that some of his legitimate doctors came to him at one point, uh, several years into his presidency, and said that you have to stop this. One of them bragged that he said to the president that a man who's taking this stuff should not have his finger on the nuclear button. JFK was almost certainly under the influence during some of his presidency. There are also, by the way, lots of rumors about JFK and cocaine use occasionally and marijuana use. I mean, the guy certainly had a lot of drugs in his system. There were complaints that he made about feeling groggy and out of it at times. Although, interestingly enough, the blame for JFK's feeling out of it is tied to his allergy medication. They didn't have the stuff they use now. The stuff would really whack you out in those days, and apparently he was most sidelined by the allergy medication. In any case, this is stuff that we're just finding out now. Imagine if the people in 1962 knew it. You know, JFK was president during one of the, probably the most dangerous moment in the history of the planet. History of humankind on the planet, anyway. He was the guy handling the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962. The time when the Soviet Union and the United States were facing off over the issue of nuclear weapons being placed in Cuba by the Russians. It was the closest time the world came to an all-out nuclear war. There were people in the Kennedy administration that said that they would leave the White House during the crisis to catch a few hours sleep at home and seriously wonder about whether there would either be a White House tomorrow when they woke up or whether they would wake up. I can't think of another time in human history when people have faced that threat to that degree all at once, not just one city or one country, but everywhere. In any case, it's a little scary to think about how much medicine legal and maybe illegal, the president had coursing through his system during this time that required the utmost level-headedness and rationality. We should just say, unlike the Bay of Pigs situation in the early 1960s, and unlike the Khrushchev summit, I believe it was in Berlin that Kennedy participated in uh, earlier in his presidency, those things were badly handled. The Cuban Missile Crisis was masterfully handled by JFK, and I've read accounts from some people who say that he was off the Dr. Feelgood shots by the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that played into him handling it better than he handled the earlier affairs, somewhat alluding to the idea that those earlier affairs may have been botched because he wasn't at his best. In any case, you can't know. It's part of that hidden side of history. 
but you'd love to be able to give JFK a drug test, wouldn't you? On the day, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis is, is at its worst. See, knowing about JFK's situation with the modern medical records that we have that were recently released allows you to get a glimpse of what you're missing from the rest of history. It's like an iceberg. You can see some of it protruding from the water surface, but there's a whole giant piece underneath that's being left out. Again, you can find more examples that tantalize you if you look at recent history because the record keeping is better. But you know that people from far past times were probably worse off than we are. You take a look and notice how aware the modern world is of things like drugs and alcohol and the cost to society. Look at how many regulations we have put into place, things to deter and to protect, sanctions if people go too far, testing, searches, legal. I mean, obviously, the modern world has put a great amount of effort into limiting the damage that this stuff can do. Now imagine our ancestors from the past mostly living in a world, not always, but mostly living in a world without any of these controls, oftentimes without even the social taboo of, you know, don't do this, it's frowned upon. You can quickly imagine how intoxicated earlier societies could have been. The colonial times in the United States is a perfect example. One of the classic colonial American breakfasts involved warm ale. People would drink all day in the colonies. They'd you know, start with the ale and they'd move on to wine and they would move on to hard ciders. People drank a ton. Same thing, you go look at uh, the Industrial Revolution period, the 1800s in Great Britain. And I've heard accounts that up to half of the laborers who were you know, working at the lowest levels of society were drunk all the time. Levels of drunkenness that we would not accept in the modern world. People would be out of work and homeless on the streets if they stayed drunk as often as some of the workers in the old days did. You start to wonder, with those levels of intoxication, how much was history being affected? How many of the decisions that were being made are a case of history under the influence? I think it's fair to say that a lot of our modern world around us right now is the result of intoxicated decisions by intoxicated people in intoxicated times. And it's stuff that just doesn't make it into the history books. I mean, for example, when I was doing the research for this show, I was rather shocked to find out that there's almost nothing written about this subject. I could find a ton of books, for example, on the history of drugs and alcohol. What I couldn't find was anything on the impact of drugs and alcohol on our history. And yet you know it's there. And the truth is, this is not a subject I care that much about intrinsically. But I care about the missing piece of the puzzle. You know, what we aren't able to explain because we don't know about this stuff. And this had never occurred to me before, this hidden side of history, until one of the rare books that deals with any of this came out in the early 1990s. In general, the only works you can find that give you a little bit of the view of that tip of the iceberg on this issue, peering out of the historical water, are books about a single individual. Sometimes a new work will come out, like some of the stuff on JFK, that allows you to see a window into the hidden world of an individual, and then you start in your mind to magnify that out to all the other people you don't have evidence on. Well, this book that came out in the early 1990s that changed my whole view, it's a radical book, it was revolutionary, but obvious at the same time, is a book we've mentioned on the show before. It's called Alexander the Great, The Invisible Enemy. 
by a guy named John Maxwell O'Brien, a historian named John Maxwell O'Brien. And what O'Brien does is apply a modern term to a condition that answers a lot of questions about a guy from the past. One of those missing pieces of the puzzle that fits so perfectly, you wonder why no one had proposed it before. But you see, Alexander the Great, as we've said on the show before, is one of the great Jekyll and Hyde personalities throughout history. I mean, there was this wise philosopher king side to him that has attracted you know, the attention of historians and the love of individuals ever since. But there's also this side to him that's a little like an ancient version of Adolf Hitler. And this side has received the attention of a lot of historians, too. And it's very difficult to try to reconcile the two sides of Alexander's character and all sorts of weird theories that you have to concoct to come up with the reasons for this two-sidedness of his nature when all of a sudden O'Brien just throws out something that should have been obvious to all of us. He says, what if Alexander the Great was a raging alcoholic? With all of the modern-day symptoms you would associate with somebody in the final stages of massive alcoholism, and, you know, O'Brien's book is not a page-turner. It's not one of those books you can't put down. It's not this great read. But the premise that the book is trying to support, that idea that Alexander the Great may have been a raging alcoholic, is mind-blowing. It works perfectly. He goes through the book. I mean, one of the reasons you can look at Alexander and even make this case, see the little bit of the iceberg sticking out of the water, is that he is one of the best chronicled people of the ancient world. We know very little about most individuals, but because Alexander was so famous during his time, he had people walking behind him writing down his schedule and stuff. And sometimes that bits of that schedule will make its way into the history books. And you can see the drinking parties that Alexander the Great has scheduled. He was a Macedonian, of course, and the Macedonians were famous drinkers. And they had drinking parties that involved drinking contests. That's when you know you're a serious drinker, when you actually compete to see who can drink the most the fastest. And these were serious affairs. I read one uh, line once where a historian said 35 people died at one of these Macedonian drinking parties, including the winner. Well, once you read about Alexander's schedule and you hear, hear about his drinking, it's plain that, you know, calling him an alcoholic would not be a stretch. What O'Brien was telling you to do was don't be afraid to apply these modern ideas like you know, being an alcoholic, to figures from the past. Because sometimes that's the best answer you'll find. And think about how it might have affected our world today. Let's just look at one example for which we have tantalizing bits of evidence that might allow you to construct an alternative history. You wouldn't want to do this, by the way, if you were a real historian. This is one of the freedoms that I have just being a history fan. I can speculate wildly with limited evidence and allow you folks to go out and have a good time trying to see if this matches or not. You see, you could look at the Second World War a whole different way if you wanted to. Because we have evidence about many of the major players in that war that may have had as part of their hidden histories some, let's just say, hidden influence. And in some cases it was an alcoholic hidden influence, and in other cases a drug-induced one. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Look at the leaders who were running the major powers in the Second World War. Take Roosevelt out of the equation, because although he was a drinker, Franklin Roosevelt seemed to be rather free of any monkeys on his back, to coin the old phrase. But his counterpart in Great Britain might not have been. We said in our Hardcore History episode about Winston Churchill that he was a known heavy drinker. And understand something. In the uh, era that Churchill lived, 
people drank more than they do today. It was more societally acceptable to have a lot more drinking going on than it would be today. But Churchill was considered a heavy drinker even by the standards of the time. Gretchen Rubin, in her wonderful book, 40 Ways to Look at Winston Churchill, has a whole chapter on whether or not he was an alcoholic. And she divides the whole book into a pro section and a con section. So she'll have some historians claiming that he was an alcoholic, followed by the other side saying he wasn't. Well, as Rubin says, though, Winston Churchill had a drinking pattern. The pattern was he started drinking the moment he woke up, basically, had drinks with breakfast, whiskey and sodas, and drank all day long until he went to sleep every single day. Now, the people that say he wasn't an alcoholic will say things like, well, he would nurse his drinks and they were watered down with soda and all this kind of stuff. But if you're having drinks all day long, every day, starting with breakfast, if not before, I think it's safe to say you might be under the influence sometimes during important decision making. That your drinking might be affecting our history. Rubin has a wonderful story where she talks about a uh, staff meeting the morning after Churchill dictated a bunch of orders. And Winston Churchill would stay up till real late, you know, four in the morning or something, go to sleep. His staff would get up at a normal time, have a meeting at 7 a.m. and read the orders that Churchill was writing at three and four in the morning after a whole day of drinking. And Rubin quotes the chief of staff as saying to the staff members one day uh, that Winston must have been quite tight, meaning drunk when he dictated these. So maybe, just maybe, Churchill's drinking was creeping into his decision-making. Can you imagine our modern presidents drinking all day long every day and having no one raise a ruckus about that? And yet Churchill didn't live that long ago. Now, it wasn't just Winston Churchill, though. Stalin is supposed to have been a near-alcoholic, if not a raging alcoholic. There is really very little evidence on this. And yet, it's tantalizingly clear that Stalin was a major drinker. I've actually uh, heard accounts where the explanation for Stalin's very, very strange behavior when the Germans first attacked the Soviet Union in 1941 is explained by a major alcoholic bender. A bender, of course, is when someone just goes off the deep end and drinks for long periods of time solidly. Well, no one has ever had a good reason why Stalin just basically disappeared when the Germans attacked the Soviet Union for at least a week. Some say it's close, closer to two weeks, where he just, he, his voice wasn't anywhere. He wasn't giving orders. Everyone was just kind of on their own. I read an account the other day in uh, preparation for this show that maintains that the reason Stalin was gone is he was dead drunk and he didn't stop drinking for days. That was his reaction to being surprised by the German invasion. If that's the case, do you think alcohol... And an alcoholic might have had more than a little effect on the course of the Second World War. If the Russians are deprived from leadership for the first week and a half of the Second World War, you know, their war with Germany, you don't think that might have an influence? But of course, you're hamstrung again by the evidence. We don't know that Stalin was dead drunk during that period, which is why it's the number two thing on my to-do list when I get the time machine. Mail order takes a little time, you know. Now, it wasn't just people on the Allied side, though. There have been rumors for a very long time about Hitler's drug use. See, Hitler is supposed to have taken amphetamine shots for the last several years of the war. The same sort of stuff JFK was taking, although it looks like Hitler was probably taking a lot more. He had said on a, one occasion that he could not live without his doctor, 
and his doctor was the one who gave him those shots. And not just amphetamines, but barbiturates to come down from the amphetamines. And as to how much this affected Adolf Hitler, it's tough to say. Except that you'll note that Adolf Hitler did what Alexander the Great did too, which is descend into an almost form of madness by the end of their lives. And historians, you know, doing what I said would happen with the Princess Diana, example we used earlier, if you don't know about the substances involved that explain logically what's going on, you start trying to come up with, you know, less and less logical solutions to explain behaviors. With both Hitler and Alexander the Great, historians have often said that they, they just turned crazy because of megalomania. That absolute power corrupted them both absolutely, and that you descent into madness when there are no controls and, you know, you have absolute control. Absolute power. But you know what? That solution is probably more far-fetched than it needs to be. Because if you look at Hitler's descent into pseudo-madness, it sure looks a lot like amphetamine psychosis. This happens to people who use amphetamine for long periods of time. They essentially go crazy. And Hitler had a lot of the symptoms of an amphetamine user. Everything from paranoia to delusions to, at the end of his life, you can see in old movies, he's shaking like a leaf, his hands and everything. And historians have started to say, well, you know, he might have been suffering from uh, a, a bad form of Parkinson's disease. Yeah, or he just may be an amphetamine user showing the classic side effects of using that drug for a long period of time. The piece of that puzzle fits very well for Adolf Hitler. And now it wasn't just Hitler. Take his second in command for most of the Second World War, a World War I flying ace named Hermann Göring. He was the guy who was in charge of the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe. Göring was a morphine addict. He had been injured in the early uh, Nazi marches. He'd been shot. And while he was recovering, he got hooked to morphine. And this addiction stayed with him till after the German surrender. He was weaned off the morphine while in the Allies' custody before the Nuremberg trials. Albert Speer writes in his memoirs, among other Nazis, that Goring would fall asleep at staff meetings. I mean, he would just inject himself before the meeting and he would nod off during important discussions. And you really wonder whether or not Goring's addiction played any role in the fact that the Luftwaffe basically underperformed for most of the war. You want to find reasons the Germans didn't do better. The Luftwaffe not performing better is a good, good place to start. How much of that can be blamed on Hermann Goring? Well, by the end of the war, most of the people around him thought he was pretty incompetent. Sometimes historical examples of incompetency have other things at their root rather than just, you know, not knowing what you're doing, if you catch my drift. So if you wanted to write a new history of the Second World War, what if you said Churchill and Stalin were both misusing or overusing alcohol and Hitler and Goring were both taking drugs? And, you know, from a logic standpoint, I think it would be strange to say that the drugs and the alcohol of the war leaders in the Second World War wasn't affecting the outcome of the war. Wouldn't that be stranger? Yeah, Hitler and Goring were both shooting up drugs, but it didn't affect anything. Stalin and Churchill were both drinking tons of liquor, but it didn't affect anything. The missing piece of the puzzle sometimes explains a lot. There are so many examples that you can point to that are tantalizing cases of anecdotal evidence or circumstantial evidence. There's one I found that I had no idea about that may have decided the outcome of the famous Battle of Waterloo with Napoleon. 
You know, the Napoleon story is a great story. I'm not the hugest fan of the era, but you can't help but be captivated by the French emperor. He had maybe the greatest political and military second act in the history of the world. You see, Napoleon had been defeated at the end of his career, or so everyone thought, by a coalition of European powers. I mean, it took most of Europe to defeat the French emperor and finally, you know, bring France to heel. And when these victorious powers beat France, they exiled Napoleon to an island off the coast of Italy, and they figured he would just die there. And then they began cutting Europe apart at these congresses, like the Congress of Vienna, and demobilizing their armies, and going back to a, an 18th century version of normalcy, to use that word from the end of the First World War. And while their backs were turned, Napoleon came back. I mean, they had left this guy on the island with all of his genius intact and all of his ambition, and he was harboring bitterness and resentment, and, well, it was a foolish move. And when their backs were turned, all of a sudden Napoleon is missing from Elba. And by the time they've absorbed that piece of information, he's landed on the coast of France. And by the time they've absorbed that piece of information, he's marching on Paris. Now, the Allies had put a new king in France when they got rid of Napoleon. And this king sends uh, a general and some soldiers to stop Napoleon on his march to Paris. And they get there, and Napoleon comes out in front of these troops who are pointing their weapons at him and says something to the effect, but it's one of the great speeches of his life, if you want to shoot your emperor, I'm here. And history says that these soldiers threw down their weapons, tears streaming down their face, and screamed, Viva la Empereur! And all of a sudden join him, armed, on his march to Paris. The French king, the new French king, sensibly leaves. And in maybe the greatest act of his life, Napoleon takes Paris over again, grabs the reins of government, the rest of the world is shockingly watching all this going on, and he proceeds to raise another large French army of hundreds of thousands of people from a country that has been bled white from 20 years of unremitting warfare. And within a hundred days, Napoleon has these armies in place facing off against the British and their allies and the Prussians and their allies and has a chance to win. And the only thing I could think of as an example for 20th century people that would compare would be to imagine that Adolf Hitler had stopped the Second World War right before the Allies invaded Germany and made a deal with Churchill and Roosevelt and Stalin that said, I will save you having to go house to house and lose all those people in vicious street fighting if you'll just let me leave. Let me go off to some island somewhere and, you know, you can have Germany and the war will be over. And then imagine that they let Hitler go, that they put a new government in power, get rid of the Nazis, and then they go about demobilizing their forces and returning to a normal way of life, and then all of a sudden Hitler's back. And that the government sends troops to stop him, and he turns them around to his favor, marches on Berlin, retakes Germany, and within a hundred days he's got German armies facing the Soviets and the Allies again with a chance to win. It's an amazing feat by Napoleon. So the day of the Battle of Waterloo, when you most need to be on your game, Napoleon wasn't. People have been trying to figure out why the heck Napoleon was out of sorts the day of this crucial battle, and all kinds of theories have been proposed. You see, the French emperor was in pain around this time. He was suffering from all sorts of ailments, including one which may have killed him later, stomach ailments. 
And the day of the battle, he was not himself. He was sluggish and fuzzy and indecisive and slow. This from a man whose signature style of warfare involved decisiveness, speed, and moving to the point of attack, knowing the crux of the battle and getting to it fast, was not himself. And yet, even in a poor performance by Napoleon, his adversary at the battle, the uh, Duke of Wellington, the British general, had to say that the battle itself was, quote, a near-run thing, end quote, meaning it easily could have gone the other way. So if the battle was that close with Napoleon in poor shape, what would it have been like if he had been himself? Historians have been trying to theorize why he wasn't himself ever since. Well, when I was doing the research for this show, I stumbled upon a piece of information I was unaware of. Apparently, Napoleon took a dose of opium the night before the battle. Napoleon would not have passed a modern drug test either. You see, opium was um, used medicinally back in that era, and the night before the battle, Napoleon was in pain. And he couldn't sleep. And so probably under a doctor's orders, he ingested this opium, and he not only slept, but he slept late. Everyone noticed it, alarmingly late. What's more, when he woke up, he was fuzzy and sluggish and slow. There are accounts that he took another dose of opium that day. The same account that said he took the dose in the first place suggested that he may have taken the dose the day of the battle. Can you imagine? The Battle of Waterloo decided because Napoleon Bonaparte was not himself because he took this opium? That's a pretty important missing piece of the history puzzle, isn't it? And what you have to do is use this as a template when you're judging other events in history. When you see stories where things just don't seem to add up, or when people are acting in particularly incompetent or rash or bold, there's all sorts of things that might indicate something else going on. But just try to put this template over the events and say, could somebody have been under the influence? When the Titanic hits that iceberg, could somebody have been under the influence? When the Battle of the Little Bighorn is botched from start to finish and Custer and his men are wiped out by large numbers of Indians they never should have been fighting, was somebody under the influence? When the Russian armies are destroyed at Tannenberg in a shocking victory by the German army in the First World War, were certain people under the influence? A lot of these events make a lot more sense if they were. I think if you could drug test or give breathalyzer tests to a bunch of the major figures in history, it would clear up some of the most vexing historical questions we have. Is our modern world partially the product of a bunch of intoxicated decisions made by intoxicated people? Almost certainly. Do we know much about that? Almost nothing at all. I'd love to know what you think of the subject we talked about here today. You can always drop me an email at dan at dancarlin.com if you'd like to share your thoughts with me. I don't answer them much anymore, these emails, because it takes my whole day when I need to be working on these shows for you. But I read everything. Your message will get through. Also, I'm going to start a discussion thread on our website at dancarlin.com asking for your nominees of figures and events where you think a drug test or a breathalyzer test might answer a lot of historical questions that we've had. We'll talk about that. Head on over to the website if you want to get involved. 
Also, you can click on the merchandising link on the website and find out how you can get a hold of some of the older Hardcore History shows, if that's been bothering you. Finally, a little update. We are working on the next big Hardcore History show, and hopefully it will not be six months till you get it, but I don't want to jinx anything. You know, our track record on that is not so good. In any case, hope you enjoyed the first Blitz show today. We will throw Blitz shows in from time to time. We will throw the long shows in, as we always have, and we'll try to throw some interview shows in as well, trying to diversify our lineup a little so we can get you more stuff more often. Thank you for everything, including your patience. And until the next time, take care. Don't forget to vote for Hardcore History on PodcastAlley.com. Thanks to everyone for posting comments about the show on iTunes. They help get the program noticed. Are you uh, feeling guilty yet? A buck a show. It's all we ask.